And it was Ringo. He was the fourth piece of the disruptive collaboration that made the Beatles who they were. And if you don't believe me, um, as much as I like the band, go listen to Wings and tell me that's as good as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. Your ability to succeed is your ability to manage through your networks. This is not a race. This is war. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have tech pioneer and best-selling author of Love is the Killer app, Tim Sanders, as he shares why Ringo was actually the key to the Beatles' success, the power of fours, and the secret of disruptive collaboration. Tim Sanders is a cool dude. He has been through so many different things, working for Mark Cuban uh, in the very early days, then moving over to Yahoo in the not quite so early days, going through so many changes in Silicon Valley. And he is somebody who has observed what works and what doesn't, how to be creative, how to bring tension in to be even more creative. And he's come up with the idea of disruptive collaboration. So I asked him, you know, can you tell us what exactly disruptive collaboration is and then share those amazing stories that support that idea. So, so the idea is that real innovation is about problem solving. And innovation occurs not because a bunch of people that are comfortable with each other got in a room and solved the problems. Innovation occurs because people that are uncomfortable working together got in the room and creative tension uh, came up with something new. I call disruptive collaboration because the idea is, is that we disrupt the status quo based on how we choose our teams to solve problems. And as I've studied organizations of all types over history, going back in time, all great innovations came from this creative tension. And the problem for so many organizations is they're siloed. You got a sales team that works tight. They don't talk to the marketing team. They don't want to talk to the land of no, which I call the legal and finance group. <laughs> but the reality is if, if the leader could pull them all together into a room and successfully bring everyone from me to we, they solve each other's blind spots. They discover patterns that no one individually would ever recognize. But as one person at SAP told me when I was working with him, he said, if you bring the police in early enough, they'll be your pep squad later when you need them the most. And, and the old saying at SAP is that if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu, <laughs> right? So, so the idea is, is that corporations that really want to be innovative, really want to respond to disrupt, they, they need to disrupt their teams a little bit. And my, what I mean is they need to shake things up when faced with the challenge and do something different if they want to produce something different in the long run. Now you had kind of a, a meteoric rise. Where did that come from? And did did this sort of uh, disruptive collaboration play a role in that? It did. So um, background here. So my career started uh, as the personal assistant for Edward Deming. You have to know the quality movement to appreciate that, but it, it was all about disrupting production to decrease errors, right? So I worked for him. And then some years later, I ended up getting a job with Mark Cuban. This is Mark Cuban, uh, broadcast.com in Dallas. This is the one that he sold for all that money to Yahoo. And I was really on the ground floor and I was working for Mark. I was a phone guy. I was got on the phone and I sold video streaming hosting in 1997 when it didn't work. You know, it was a great job, <laughs> right? $500 deals at a time. Anyway, fast forward less than three years, Yahoo's bought us. I've been promoted 11 times. I became chief solutions officer at Yahoo, and it really happened quickly for me. Um, and here's what happened. So uh, Yahoo bought us in 2000. And the first day I go to the Yahoo corporate campus in Northern California, I'm in the lunchroom that day. And, and the lunchroom was called Earl's, U-R-L. 
Get it, Earl's? Uh. And so I'm at the lunchroom, and I come out with my tray of food, and I, I look out over the lunchroom, and it looked like a scene out of the movie Clueless. It was just a bunch of clicks. Got the engineers with their dogs over at one table. You got the designers huddled around the booth with all these charts and things they were doing. The sales team's in the back. They're waving me over. And I realized that the problem with Yahoo at the time is that these groups didn't work together. And that's why we didn't have a business yet. That's why our user experience was kind of broken. And I made a decision that day, Brian, that changed my life. I decided to lunch across the lines. And so for the next six months, I sat my tray down at a different table every day at lunch. I introduced myself and I listened for opportunities to do favor. Uh, My grandmother raised me on a farm to believe that doing favors is the secret to building a network or what she would call a web, right? And so I've always believed you feed the favor economy. So I'd sit down at the engineer's table, I'd introduce myself, I'd be quiet, an engineer would be talking about this offsite presentation he had to make and he was really worried about it. I'd raise my hand. I said, I'll be your coach. I'll help you with your PowerPoint. I'll be your coach. You can present it for me. Heck, I really did this. I'll drive out to Yosemite and I'll be your timekeeper and I'll be there just to give you confidence. That was a favor. I was at a marketing table. One of the marketing people said, we really want to show the numbers to somebody to really vet it before we go to the CMO. I said, hey, I was a professional researcher in college. I'll give you two hours. For six months, I learned how to do favors outside of my department. And then the Ford opportunity came up six months and two days into my employment at Yahoo. And they said to a bunch of salespeople, we have a $10 million crisis with Ford. And I raised my hand and I said, what if I could bring together music, content, and engineering along with maps and we do the first integration deal? And our president, Jeff Mallett, says, you can't do that. They hate each other. And I said, give me a month. And we went and did a $25 million deal. And we integrated 13 departments for the first time. Well, that's it. It changed. They promote me to VP of promotions and then this and this. And then when the great reorganization happened, they brought a new CEO in. That's when I got elevated. Because what I've learned is that if you feed the favor economy and you feed it with generosity, you can build a collaborative web that can solve any problem. And I think that's the opportunity for so many organizations. Whether you're a young company like like Yahoo was at the time, or you're a big old legacy company with 100,000 employees, the reality of the biscuit is you have silos because you have budgets and you give your people objectives and they have to defend that little silo, right? You've got them and you can't do anything about that. But what you can do is convince your people to help each other build collaborative webs across the enterprise. And and the analogy I use is to connect those silos. Because when the silos become connected, an organization becomes highly effective and highly innovative. And I think the secret then is, you know, kind of getting back to the very beginning. Who do you not collaborate with? Who are you uncomfortable collaborating with? Who do you never want to collaborate with? Those are your opportunities. And you're going to feed the favor economy to solve that problem. Now, we're based here in Music City, USA. Yep. You are a musician. You know, you've, you've done all kinds of gigs in the, in, in the past. And, and what examples do you have of that, of disruptive collaboration being successful from a music standpoint? My favorite one is the Beatles. I love the Beatles example because um, I think we can all agree that the Beatles were truly an innovative band, right? Truly, truly innovative. Everything we think about in terms of creativity, innovation. But we also know that there was creative tension. Like you, you can watch Let It Be and you could see that those guys would just wanted to kill each other and you can blame it on this and blame it on that. The reality was they were engineered to have conflict. Uh, George Martin, uh, their legendary producer, I consider him the leader figure of that band. He's the one that herded together those four unique personalities. He said the secret to success for them was Ringo. 
I was like, wow, really? <laughs> That's the new one. Don't That's Pass Me By, Don't Make Me Cry. That was the worst song in the Beatles. No, no, it's not the song. It was his element in the chemistry, right? So you had Paul, the pop purist. You had John, the pre-punk rebel. You had George, uh, the hippie that didn't know he was a hippie, that brought a soulfulness to the Beatles and a musicality in his guitar style. And then you had Ringo, who wanted to make music for the people. He played half as much of his drums as best and other people at his time because he wanted it to be simple. He brought a less is more ethos to the band because that's what a drummer can or can't do, depending on whether you play for Rush or play for the Beatles. And it was Ringo. He was the fourth piece of the disruptive collaboration that made the Beatles who they were. And if you don't believe me, um, as much as I like the band, go listen to Wings a bunch and tell me that's as good as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or Magical Mystery Tour. It's not. It's good, but it's missing something. And it's not just missing John. It's missing those four personalities that can hardly be in the room together, but they solve each other's blind spots, and they notice things that other people miss, but they don't finish each other's sentences, and that's what makes them very special. And when I think about great bands today, I still see that. I mean... Uh, country. I love country. I have to tell you sometime I, I made a, a little country record with Dwight Yoakam's backup band a couple of years ago. I don't talk about it a lot, but <laughs> we shipped around hard drives and had a good time. Um, Florida Georgia Line doesn't get along very well. And, and it's not because of difficulties. They fr From day one, when they were both working in, in, in church ministry, because they came from, they both came from church music production, right? And they, they, they saw an opportunity to do something special in country, they couldn't be more opposite in their approach. Um, it's not just a personality conflict, it's a creative conflict, but that tension um, is the secret to some of their most important songs like Dirt uh, and others. So, so I even think in the modern world, we see that over and over again. You've mentioned this a couple of times, you know, both before the podcast and now, kind of that number four coming up, the four different oh, yeah, types. Yeah, and yeah. do you, do you like, you know, you're talking about earlier, you know, the meetings, if you have a yeah. meeting of four, how yep. that's different of meeting one. So let's talk a little bit about that because the, the, there is a really neat thing around the power of four. So as, I, I always dispel the power of one. I don't believe there's a lone genius. The research says it's not true. We just, we, we, we tell, we, we say Darwin did this and Whitney did that and they all had teams. Edison didn't invent anything. He was just kind of a, general contractor. But <laughs> we also have this myth about the duality, like like Lennon and McCartney, that that's a creative concept, when in fact they wrote very few songs together, when you think about it. Um, four is the magic number. So we did a study a few years ago, just a couple of years ago, and what we did is we looked at companies, a lot of companies across all seven major verticals, and we isolated um, almost 170 situations. And in those 170 situations, what they all had in common was people went into a room to have a meeting with an average length of 70 minutes, and they needed to find an innovative solution to a problem. Maybe their company had been disrupted. Maybe their company got a little bit stale. Maybe there was a, a client crisis or a, a process crisis, but they needed to innovate. And what we did is we studied the number of perspectives that were in that room and how often they walked out of that room with an innovation that worked. And it's amazing. Um, by the way, just to set this up, a perspective is a story that you tell yourself about how the world works, and it's shaped by your personal experience. And if I were to play psychologist a little bit, there's about eight perspectives archetypally. So in a, in, in a company, you think of sales as the revenue perspective. You think of marketing as the reputation position perspective. You think of finance as the profit perspective. You think of legal as the risk perspective. There's the customer perspective. There's the operations perspective. They call it the scale perspective. So anyway, when there's only one perspective in the room, what we learned in the study is that the meeting is only effective 20% of the time. <laughs> 
80% of the time, it's like a partial root canal. You know what I mean? We're going to have another meeting or even worse, they anchor around the status quo because they're just all in the silo and they say, we need to try the status quo again and let's just try it harder, more attention to detail, a minor twist. Um, And so they're not that successful as a result. We found in the study that when you had a second perspective, so think the marketing team now brings in sales to hear about what's going on on the street. Well, guess what? They're now 30% effective. It's a pretty good pretty good lift, right? 50%. Uh, we found that when they had the third perspective, so say marketing brings in sales and now they also bring in customer service, which is the real nitty gritty, right? Um, that's voice of the customer. Now they're 50% effective, okay? But the magic is the fourth we found in the study that when the marketing team is brought in, you know, the, the customer service team and the marketing team is brought in the sales team, and then the marketing team brings in the pricing and finance team, now it's 80% effectiveness. The fourth perspective created a 300% lift in innovation over working inside your silo, and it was amazing. By the way, um, after four it starts to go down, and after eight, it looks like a goat rodeo, okay? <laughs> because you, I'm not after eight, but at eight, at full number of available perspectives, the leader's challenge in managing everyone in the room from me to we and staying on focus is a little difficult. So it's not one of those, it's not, it's not one of those trees that grows straight to the sun. So four seems to be the sweet spot. At five, you go back down to about 50%. At six, you're back down to 20%. At seven, you're actually, you've gone backwards. But the magic number is four. So I think that's the takeaway, you know, for most of, most of the people that see that research is that the next time I'm putting together a meeting, brainstorm meeting, crisis meeting, whatever, I'm just going to ask myself, how many perspectives are here and how many truly opposite perspectives are here? And I think that's how you can create some magic. Now, you've given some, obviously, some great examples, you know, with the Beatles and some others. What are maybe some uh, more current business examples of, of two people that, that come together that may clash, but they, they create something great. Well, one of the ones I think we can all relate to um, is um, Apple. So uh, obviously a lot of us use Apple products. And for those of us listening, Tim just showed off his cool Apple watch. A lot of us use Apple. Apple's become just a fantastically successful company. But, but the reality is um, Steve and Steve couldn't be more opposite in personality. That's what made them special. I had an opportunity to interview the founders of the Homebrew Computer Club. If you read the Steve Jobs bio, you know that was the group that the two Steves belonged to where they launched the first you know, Macintosh, right? The founders all said to a person that when Wozniak, a true engineer, partnered with Steve Jobs, a marketing sales dreamer, right? He drew pictures you know, on a flip chart that no one could ever build. When they got together, everybody thought Waz had lost his mind. But because before this partnership, engineers partnered with engineers because they understood each other. And that's why they built these things that worked that were ugly and modular and they tinkered with them and no average person like you and I could actually use them. So anyway, the, the Steve and Steve worked together and they had a lot of tension. I mean, it, not just because in their early days at Atari, they had fought a lot about game design, but they just had tension. And the tension actually was the secret to them thinking different. And when you hear the phrase think different, which really should have been think differently, but Wozniak insisted on think different because it was shorter by a couple of letters, they were really talking about partner different. Because what they had disrupted is the way engineers worked on consumer products. But I think the coolest story about disruptive collaboration with Jobs is that 
He believed in collisions. He believed in collisions of thought. That's why when he was the lead investor at Pixar, he convinced Ed Catmull and the leadership team to structure the new headquarters in a way where if you were an engineer and you wanted to go to the bathroom or go to the break room, you had to walk through two other departments on the way, and usually you had chance conversations with people you didn't work with, and that created an innovative atmosphere, okay? So he took that a step further, and um, when he uh, was at Apple and they were working on the breakthrough, when he came back, you know, he got fired, he came back, Apple was in crisis, they didn't have any successful consumer products that were widely adopted. He wanted to create the first computer that was beautiful, like something you'd show off, like an expensive piece of jewelry or a cool leather couch. So at the time, most of the manufacturers of computers, they talked to each other, they talked to the plastic infusion molding people, whatever. Jobs had a different tact. He said, he told Johnny Ive, the guy he hired uh, for his design studio, he says, I want you to go to candy company. In fact, I want you to go to a jelly bean factory. And I want you to figure out how they do those colors, how they get those frosty looks, and how they scale those colors. And so Johnny Ive literally visits a jelly bean factory and comes back with the concept of the design for the iMac, which was a remarkably beautiful... I had a purple one. I don't know if you have one, but I had a purple one. It's kind of a greenish... Yeah. They're green, whatever. Well, they had eight know. colors yeah. when they launched, right? And their marketing campaign when they first launched was three letters, yum. And that's an example of, it's, not, it's beyond think outside the box. He didn't think outside of the box. What did he do? He solved outside of the box. And so I, I tell people all the time, my friends, I say, especially the managers and the leaders I know, I say, don't just tell your people to think outside the box. Tell them to solve across the lines. Tell them to be okay with the potential of conflict. I call them earthquakes, right? Because, because when you think about it, it's like these groups that come together. So when you, you're going to go work with this finance group you've been at odds with forever on pricing, that's a fault line, <laughs> right? When the sales team's going to go actually work with customer service directly, that's a fault line. You can have earthquakes, but you need to be courageous enough because nothing else will help you become truly different or to think different. I know this is outside the flow of what of what we've been talking about, but I love your asthma never quitting story. Can you share that with us? Okay, so I always wanted to be an athlete. I told you I was born in Lubbock, raised in Clovis. That's eastern New Mexico. Yeah. It's like right there on the border of Texas. That's football country, okay? Yeah. If you don't play in the football team, you're going to stag it to the prom, where I, where I come <laughs> from, okay? But here's the problem. I had really bad asthma. My asthma was so bad, my nickname was Weezer. When oh, I was in, when in grammar school. So um, I, I got cut from football the first day. I was like hiding behind those pads the kids <laughs> run into. So they would like line up, but like just knock the meat to the ground. They cut me. I was became the equipment manager. Uh, didn't even get a chance to try for basketball. But the track coach, Coach Hoy, went to our church. He knew my grandmother who raised me, and um, he felt sorry for me. And they, they let me on the track team, and they had – uh, this is in the eighth grade. They had the returning regional, because you have districts and regionals, champion uh, mile, Buddy Hutto. He was like an amazing miler, uh, and he was great. So I was the other miler. Hmm. Well, because I had such bad asthma, I believe my personal best was probably like 25 minutes, you know, maybe for the mile. Because wow. you had yeah. to stop and cough stuff up all the time. It was a, <laughs> it was a difficult experience. So I went to seven trap meets that year, including districts. And and <laughs> at, at, at every one of those track meets, I got lapped. 
Oh, wow. So you have to understand. Because that's four laps. It's four laps around a 440-yard track. And so what would happen is that we'd, we'd start running and, you know, I'd stop and hawk stuff up and keep running. And, and I'd be running sideways like a dog by the end of the whole race. And so I would be finishing the third race and they would be coming in on you know, top of me, you know, uh, finishing the entire mile. And um, I've always been a sales guy, so I always learned to stop and pretend I was done too. Um, and at the Texaco tournament, they actually gave me second place and, and coach made me walk that ribbon back, man. It was, it was really, it was really a moment of shame. <laughs> My nickname became 1320. Do the math, right? That's what they called me. They called me 1320 because I only ran three laps. And, and, and here's the takeaway. People don't like quitters of any types. You know, the, the reason that they would do terrible things to me, like they, they once uh, took athletic tape and three of the kids held me down. They turned the bench over. I was little. So they stuffed me underneath the bench and taped me and turned the bench back upside down. I, I literally was on there yelling. Somebody had to cut me out later. They would do those kind of things to me because at a visceral level, we hate quitters. And the fact that I went out and embarrassed them and didn't finish the mile was not a good thing. So district tournament, last race, obviously going to be the last race of my track career. I'm running that day. A little bit different because one of the kids thought it would be hilarious to rub uh, three fingers of Tiger Balm into my black shorts that day. It was a, one of the many practical jokes. So I ran with my tail on fire, like literally that day. Um, and much like Barry, uh, Barry Bond's cream, it did not improve my performance. <laughs> I'm coming in at the end of the third lap. They're finishing the district race. It's the last race of the day. They finish on top of me. And I don't stop running. The first time I said to myself, I was like thinking, you know, I think of my grandma, you know, quitter never wins and a winner never quits. I'm thinking, well, this is the last race I'll ever have. I'm going to finish. I'm like, it's the end of the day. They got 10 minutes because that was always the longest lap back on the practice track. So I kept running and I kept running. And I remember when I kind of was running on the backside, I couldn't look over at the bleachers because I knew those the kids were laughing at me, I'm sure, right? And so when I come around and I hit the home stretch, I hit the final home stretch, all the guys on my team, they jump up in the air and they're cheering. Now, these are teenagers. Brian, these are hardened criminals, okay? <laughs> and they're cheering like, run, Weezer, run. And I'm running really hard down the thing. And a couple of people grab the tape and they make a makeshift tape. And I break the tape and I fall in a wheezing pile of like stuff. And they run down out of the bleachers and they shook my hand like I'd set like a land speed record. And it was... It's an amazing experience because people are really, that's why I really do believe that people are compassionate, you know, that people really respond to, to people that are really trying to do something. And um, the shot putter, Jared, who I was afraid of, he was so big, he, he threw my wheezing body over his shoulders like a sack of potatoes <laughs> and carried me back to the bus. And, and I sat in the normal chair, I always sat on the bus, which was the, the first seat behind the driver. Yeah, I was, I was one of those. And um, somebody sat next to me for the, only time and I was ever on the track team and it was our uh, team captain Gus and he'd had a typical day at the office he'd won five first place ribbons and one second place ribbon and the second place ribbon he's like LeBron when he loses he gets all mad he took the second place shoved it in his pocket mm, uh, lost anyway he sat next to me and he looks over at me and he says hey Weezer he said hold your hand out and I was kind of afraid of him <laughs> I didn't know what he was going to do right so I hold my hand out he took out of his pocket the second place ribbon that represented failure to him and he put it in my hand and he closed it with his and he goes, you did a great thing today. And he goes, this is for the one you had to take back in Texaco. And that guy was my campaign manager a few years later when I ran and won senior class president. Wow. Right. And I was a special ed student from second to sixth grade. It was a remarkable turnaround in my social status. And when I got together at my 30 year reunion, 
several of the guys, including Gus, said that was, you know, we, we still think about that moment about Weezer, you know, running and hawking and coughing. <laughs> and when we got stuck doing something, we'd say, man, if that guy could run another lap and be, be that embarrassed, I can do it too. So it's like the Rudy story, except not as impactful. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of D. & Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Jout, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast?